Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. Anybody make a New Year's resolution? Good. Uh, sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't see these over here. I don't mean, sorry. The rest of you, well done. Good too. Uh, I don't normally make New Year's resolutions because I don't want to set myself up to fail that badly. But at the beginning of 2018, I feel like it's appropriate to stop and look out over the year ahead. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Micah. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks. It's good to be back together. I can't believe this is the first Sunday of 2018. There's been so much going on, it already feels like it should be mid-February. But with all that said, we are at the beginning of a new year. And as a a group, as a family, as a a culture, as a church, I wanted to stop and just kind of lay something out before us at the beginning of 2018. Next week, we're going to start a study on Galatians. I mentioned before uh, Christmas that in the very near future, we want to to do a study, to talk a little bit about loneliness. Loneliness is the number one professed need in our culture. And why I'm telling you that now is because what I want you to know is we don't want to do like a a shallow job on it. We don't want to do just a half-done, half-baked job. So we're working on it and, and trying to actually, all right, how do we deal with people's deepest needs like this? What is good counsel? And so we're working on that. We're going to do a study on the book of Galatians first, which I love. The book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul was used by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Galatians. But it is Paul at his most sarcastic. And if you're a fan of British humor, or if you're a fan of like uh, using words to kind of turn people's head, smack them around a little bit. Paul really goes into it in Galatians, and I'm looking forward to spending some time there together. But today, I want to cast a vision out for 2018. Before we do that, I thought I'd start with a bit of a funny story. I'm trying to take notes from Pastor Kai. Pastor Kai always started his uh, sermons with a funny story. Uh, so I, I thought I'd start with a funny story, and i got to admit... I'm rapidly becoming one of those pastors that starts every sermon with a story about their kid. I don't want to do that, but I'm doing it today. We got home from vacation, and I I have to say publicly a thank you to those who made it possible for us to get off a little bit early. The original plan was to stay through all three Christmas Eve services, and my family had to be in Ontario this year. Uh, We've got family up there who can make it home, so we took Christmas to them. Uh, and the plan was to stay through all Christmas, three Christmas Eve services and then drive for 16 hours to get to Ontario for Christmas morning. Whereupon, when I told the team this, they very politely told me I was stupid. <laughs> and that I should leave early and that they could cover it. And that's what we did. And I'm grateful to everybody who, who made that happen. But we got home. Uh, we, we came back from Ontario, went to PEI for New Year's, came home. Monday night, and sometime, I can't quite remember which night it was, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, somewhere in there, I'm rocking my child to sleep, and as is our habit, I pray for her as I'm rocking her. She says, thanks, Daddy, and she's only three and a bit if you don't know her, and then she says, now I'm going to pray for you. Oh. 
right? That's like, everybody's like, oh, how nice. I'm like, okay, dear, you go ahead. <laughs> dear God, thank you for my family. Mommy has a new cheese grater. <laughs> I like the old cheese grater. The new cheese grater has two sides. Two sides are sharp. The mommy used the new cheese grater, even though I like the old cheese grater. She, it has two sides. Two sides are sharp. Mommy took off one side. She put the lid on that side so that the cheese could be grated into... This went on. <laughs> this went on. I don't know how, if you've had to rock a child, how you measure the passage of time. In my household, the passage of time is measured by the number of songs that play on the lullaby CD. The conversation about the cheese grater took two songs. <laughs> two of them. And it wasn't like there was new themes. Two sides, sharp, the old one's better. And that was somewhere around the, uh, in the middle of the second song. I started having this conversation with God. And looking back on it, it seems like it's this profound statement that Micah makes. Lord, I am so glad that you are the type of God where small children can talk to you about cheese graters. Thank you. By the way, the, the prayer ends like this. Uh, it has two sides. Two sides are sharp. Mommy, turn that around. Help Daddy sleep well. Amen. That's over the prayer ends. That's it. Thanks for the family. Cheese grater. Good night's sleep. Amen. God, thank you so much that you're the type of God that small children can talk to you about cheese graters and you pay attention. Sounds like this profound theological truth, and it is true. Don't get me wrong. Then this voice goes off in my head. Uh, to humble me a little bit. Do you really think that what you talked to me about is any more important? Right. <laughs> and as I stand up here this morning, you got to know this. There's nothing magical about Micah. When I took on the the pastoral, uh, pastoral role here at Emmanuel. It sounded like they gave me a key to a special sacred closet. And when I got ordained, it's not like, here's the sacred oil. You know, this relic will now give you power immeasurable. I'm just a normal guy. And in theory, I've spent more time studying and praying this week about the subject. Practice, I hope that's true. But here's what I know. Unless the Holy Spirit moves today, unless God moves I might as well stand up here and talk about cheese graters. But if the Holy Spirit moves, even if I was talking about cheese graters, lives could be changed. So this morning, I'd like to pray. I pray that God moves in us and does something in us and that we don't leave unchallenged this morning. God, I, I know, frankly, I'm, I'm not much more than a goofball on a platform. Lord, we know that we are a people who are challenged and messed up. But God, we also know that you've called us your own. We know that you move in our lives and you do things that we can't account for. You speak to us in the middle of the night. You wake us up in the middle of the day. Draw our attention to, to things that we hadn't noticed before, God, and we're so grateful. And so, Lord, this morning as we, we gather on the first Sunday of 2018, 
Would you stir something up in us? God, the things that I say that are, are useless and distractions, just let them go. But the work that you want to do in our lives, would you please make that happen? Don't let us leave here unchallenged this morning, I pray. In your name, amen. As I look out over the year 2018 with my non-existent crystal ball, I can't tell very much about it. But I do know this. 2018 is going to be the year of change. There is a lot changing. There's a lot changing in our culture as a whole. Our culture is changing faster than ever before. The pace of change has never been greater. How our culture has changed just even in the decade and a half that I've been here, I can barely keep track of. Facebook has been around less than half the time I've been here. And yet, two billion people on this planet use it every month. The pace of change is incredible. What our society now views as normative would have been an outlier a decade ago. And we don't really notice it, except every once in a while it feels like we're getting a little bit of like cultural vertigo and a little bit dizzy, and we're like, oh yeah, things really are changing around us all the time. When I talk to retired pastors, they make the comment that they have observed more change in the last five years than they had in 60 years of ministry. And it's happening and happening and happening and happening. And for a lot of us, we claim that we like change. I've met lots of people who claim I like change. I've only ever met two people who actually do like change. Normally when people say they like change, they mean when other people change. Normally when people say they like change, they mean when people change to fit my wants and my needs. But when change attacks us, when it comes knocking at our door, Almost none of us like it. And it's hilarious to me to watch the people who stop and scream, they just need to change, and then get challenged, and they're some of the most stubborn people I've ever met in my life. And it, I know that for some of us, we're holding out this kind of like secret hope that maybe the pace of change will slow down. Maybe, maybe things will go back to the way they used to be. Maybe we can get off this new shoreline that we find ourselves on, get on the boats that sailed us here, and go back home because this feels weird here. I got bad news. I don't know who did it, but somebody burned the ships. We can't go back. There's no going back to how things used to be, and frankly, things are going to keep changing. Even within our own home here, even within our own space, our own culture, we are going to have to wrestle through lots of change in 2018. 2017 was the year that we learned of the change. 2018 is the year that we live it out. And as we stand at the edge of a year full of change, I want to talk for just a moment about our identity. Because when change comes... It can feel like our identity is being attacked. You know this. New kid is born. 
I don't really want to know. That's a little bit TMI, but let's hope that it happened relatively quick, that the suffering didn't go on long. But in a relatively brief period of time, two otherwise normal human beings are endowed with the title father and mother, and their identity is changed for the rest of their life. A couple stands right here. They say, I do. And with a word, they go from being single people to being a married couple. They go from being Joe and Jane Smith to husband and wife. And their identity is changed in a moment. You've worked someplace for years. And your boss calls you in and says, business isn't going so well and we've got to lay you off. And your identity has gone from secure, stable, friend, to unemployed with feelings of betrayal. Your identity has changed in a moment. Somebody sits in my office and shares about the disillusion of a marriage. And what they thought was forever crumbles. And their identity has changed. When change comes, it can dig into our identity. You get invited to take a job on the mainland of all places, and all of a sudden you're not an island boy anymore. Sorry, that was a little... It's good to be home in PEI on New Year's. <laughs> Your identity gets changed. It morphs when change comes knocking at our door. And as a people, we have an identity. What you think of when you think of Emmanuel, what you think of when you think of home, it's changing. And that can be unnerving. And I want to talk, as we set out on a year of change, about a truth around our identity and a choice that we have to make. One of the beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there are foundational truths that nothing can shake. But every once in a while, you'll encounter two of these truths that seem to be in tension with each other. They don't contradict each other, but you're not just sure how they fit together. And today, I want to take a look at two truths that create a lot of tension. And out of that tension, a third truth emerges. It's almost like in a barbershop quartet when you've got a couple of people singing and they both sing two notes and in the resonance a third note emerges. Or like the old Gregorian chants. In this tension, a third truth emerges. Your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ is completely set. Nothing can change what God thinks of you. I'm going to wander all through Scripture today. It's not going to be up on the screen. But in 1 John chapter 3, we're reminded that when we accept the free gift of Jesus Christ and make him Lord and Savior of our life, we are children of God. We're brought into his family. We're brought into this family. And our identity as a child is unwavering, not as immature, but as belonging to God's family is unwavering. And I find it incredibly encouraging to look at how God addresses his children. 
Early in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 3, in fact, before Jesus starts his ministry, he shows up on the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is baptizing people who need to repent of their sins. And Jesus says, I'm going to be baptized. And John's like, uh, no, you're perfect. I'm not. You're going to baptize me, now the other way around. And Jesus says, do this for it is good. And in an act of obedience, Jesus is baptized. And something amazing happens. As he comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven speaks. This is my... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm doing the God voice. <laughs> this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, one of the interesting things I found, everybody who's a kid, and everybody who's ever been a kid, longs to hear those words from their parents. This is my kid with whom I am well pleased. It's a phrase that appears twice in the Gospel of Matthew. This one is right at the beginning of his ministry, before he does any of the stuff that we really take note of, the, the healing of the sick, the, the giving sight to the blind, the helping the lame walk, the casting out of the demons, the, the multiplying the bread to feed thousands, the turning the water into the wine, and the Baptist trying to turn it back. Before any of that stuff, before any of that stuff, before he's done anything really of miraculous note, God says, I'm pleased with my kid. It's said again at the other end of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, just before the crucifixion process, the heroes of the faith are gathered around on this incredible vision, and Peter, James, and John are there to witness, and Peter keeps sticking his foot in his mouth. Jesus is transformed into his heavenly body, we think. We, that's our understanding of it. And God speaks to Peter. He interrupts Peter's babbling and says, This is my son. You should listen to him. With him I am well pleased. You know what's interesting? God's assessment of his kid doesn't change based on what the kid has done. He uses the same words before the miraculous ministries start as he uses at the end of all the miraculous ministries. Whatever your past is, God loves you. He's pleased with you. He wants you in his family. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again to give you a place around this family table. And nothing you have done will ever change the fact that he is pleased with you. And nothing you ever do will change the fact that he is just as pleased with you. Some of us Christians who have been following Jesus for a long time, we wear our accomplishments kind of like badges, medals. Oh, I've been in 86 Bible studies. I've sung in whatever many quartets. I've taught how... Guess what? None of it changes how God thinks of you. Oh, I've served in all kinds of denominational leadership, or I've been on the missions field, or I've done whatever it is that Christians look up to. It doesn't impact at all what God thinks of you. 
God is still as pleased with you today as when you first started out on this journey with him. Your identity in Christ is fixed. God is pleased with you because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that is a foundational truth. And it is held in tension with this other truth. Because another truth of the gospel is we're not supposed to stay where we were. And in fact, there's this expectation that we will grow. There's a story in John chapter 8. The religious folk are trying to trap Jesus, and they bring this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and without getting too gross, like, what kind of sick and depraved activity do you have to be doing to manage to catch somebody in that kind of intimate moment? And they drag her out by herself for reasons, and they stand her in front of Jesus and say, what are we going to do with her? Because she has sinned against God and against the community. She has broken community. Her vows to maintain her home and his vows, who for some reason he's not there because guys are dumb. Their vows have been broken and they have broken, they have sinned against the community. And the law says that they should be killed for that because it is causing sickness in our community, dishealth. And so, Jesus, are you going to condemn her and prove to everybody that you're just like everybody else? Or are you going to break the law and set her free? Jesus, being the incredible man that he is, God incarnate, says, you're right, the law condemns her. So you who are without sin, you throw the first stone. And the Bible records that from the oldest to the youngest, they wander off because none of us are without sin. Jesus stands up and looks at the woman and says, Hey, woman, where, where are those? Where are your accusers? Did no one remain to condemn you? No one, sir, she says. And then the guy who is without sin says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Incredible grace, incredible love. And that incredible wisdom, and that is often where we stop, except the story continues, because Jesus then says, Now go and sin no more. That's this expectation of change. Her identity is fixed. Jesus loves her. He shows her grace and mercy, and yet there's this expectation of growth. The book of Revelation is one that we don't look at a whole lot because, frankly, everybody has a theory about what all the visions in Revelation mean. And the wisest man, well, I shouldn't say, well, one of the wisest men I ever knew taught my eschatology class, stood at the front of the class at the end of it, which is the study of end times and Revelation and all of its meanings. And this is what he said. He speaks like 14 languages and just this incredible thinker. Has more books memorized than I've read. He stands up there and goes, I have no idea which one's right. God knows. I don't. And for the most part, we don't dig into Revelation because it's a bit of a black hole. The more you dig into it, the more sucked in you get, and the more useless you become for the mission of Christ. But in the first couple of chapters, 
Because we're so scared of the tarball that is the later chapters, we miss the first couple of chapters. In chapters 2 and 3, something amazing happens. The Apostle John is caught up in this vision, and Jesus appears to him in, in what's kind of a mirror of the Old Testament tabernacle, the good old days, where God was in the Ark of the Covenant, and or above the Ark of the Covenant, and there were these ornaments around, and one of the most important was this golden lampstand, which represented the people's presence and God's presence. And in John's vision, there's these seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches, which we now understand means all of us because it's part of Scripture. And Jesus gives a letter to each of the churches, and John writes it down and sends it off. This is some of the most terrifying stuff in Scripture, if you read it. Because the truth that God's love for you is unassailable, is fixed. And yet, in Revelation, all but one of the letters has some version of this. You've got this going on, that's great, but you've got these problems. And these are serious. Deal with these problems, or I will come and remove your lampstand from God's presence. To unpack that a little bit, being removed from God's presence is kind of a layman's definition of hell. Being where God isn't. Being away from all that is good. There is these two fixed truths that God's love for you will never change. And intention with that is this notion that in the midst of that, we are to be growing. That there are consequences to ongoing perpetual cultural sin. And in that tension, a third truth emerges. And you're not supposed to boil things down to bumper stickers, but if you'll have some grace with me, I'm about to give you a bumper sticker saying, it appears to me that God is much more concerned with where you are going than where you've been. God is much more concerned with where you are going, the type of person you are growing into, how you are maturing as a Christian, how we as a church are shaping ourselves in our past. And it's great to have a legacy that we can stand on. I, I've often said we stand on shoulders of giants. That is wonderful. It does not determine our future. And if you are carrying pain in your life, if you have been abused or mistreated, I am so sorry. And let me give you this word of hope. Your past does not determine your future. Repentance is always met with grace. And God is much more concerned about your future, with where you are going, where we are going, than with our past. And on the doorstep of 2018, as we look out into the future, a year of change, I think we need to make a couple of choices about the type of people that we are going to continue to be, the type of people that we are going to become. 
I think there's something that we need to press into and something that we need to leave in 2017. Our culture, the one that we live in, I don't necessarily mean Emmanuel, but I mean North America and specifically, frankly, Nova Scotia and even within that, Truro. Our culture is tainted by mistrust. We live in a society that chronically believes the worst of people. And I get it. Some people have fallen far below what we thought they could. I believe the worst, and somehow you said, I get that. But most people haven't. Most people haven't. And yet I have been in conversations with people where they're sure that a brother or a sister has a secret agenda. And I go and visit with the brother and the sister, and they're sure the other person does. And we've got this habit, and it's kind of made its way into our midst of believing the worst about each other. I think we need to leave that in 2017. I think as we move forward, I think we need to press into believing that we can be generous. And I know that some of us are carrying around wounds. Some of us feel like we've been stabbed in the back. Some of us feel completely gutted. I get it, but we can still make the choice. Our past doesn't determine our future. To be generous in our belief about other people. I think as a church, we need to choose to believe the best of people. And that's going to be hard because we've got a habit of believing the worst. And we need to leave that behind. And there's one other thing that I think we really need to press into. I think three things are all that we can keep track of for an entire year. I don't know about you, but my life is too busy. Leaving the judgmentalism behind. Pressing into generous thoughts about each other. I think we need to choose where our focus is going to be. Let me explain. Whenever a group of people get rattled by change, their vision turns inward to try and figure out why. It's a foundational truth. And as a church that is guided by the great commandment and the great commission, love God and love others, and go into all the world, make disciples and teach them. As a church that is guided by those two pillars, When we get shaken and our gaze turns inward, we lose our focus on what should be our mission. We are a church called to bring the gospel to a culture that doesn't understand it in a way that they can comprehend. That is our mission. That is our DNA. That is what we are all about. It's what we've always been about. It's what we will always be about. And yet when change comes, we get rattled and shaken and we look inwards. And there's all kinds of reasons for it. And I went into it in the first service. and I'm not sure it was wise. But let me give you my evidence for this. 2017 will go down in our record books as the year where at Emmanuel, the fewest number of people put their trust in Christ and the fewest people were baptized in recent memory. And I don't want that for 2018. I believe that in 2018, we need to choose what kind of people we're going to be like. We live in a land 
whose gods are selfishness and narcissism and self-reflection. And I can't help, as I was prepping this morning, remembering a plaque that hung at the top of the stairs, the home I grew up in. It comes out of Joshua. Joshua was the leader that followed Moses. He's leading the people of God into the promised land. And now they are there, and they are surrounded by people who worship other gods. And Joshua, towards the end of his tenure, says to the people, Choose now whom you will serve, the gods of the land that you now live in, and the God of Israel. But as for me and my house, this plaque at the top of my stairs, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In 2018, I think as a, a people who call this place home, we need to decide where our focus is going to be. I'm not saying that we don't care for each other. I'm not saying we don't disciple each other. I am shocked every time I challenge us, every time a pastor challenges us to turn our eyes outwards, somebody comes by and says, yes, but shouldn't we be discipling people inwards? Yes, of course we care for each other. We must care for each other. But if our eyes are only ever inwards, if our default is inwards, we will become toxic and we will die. I am worried about our lampstand. I don't believe God's given up on us. But I think we need to figure out where our focus is. And if we do not decide that our focus is on bringing the gospel to people who don't know it, then any time there's a conflict between being outward or inward focused, by default, as a culture, we will choose to be inward. And we serve a God who gave us the Great Commission an outward-focused command. <coughs> Go. It is the DNA definition, the building blocks of what Emmanuel is. And in a season of change where everything gets rattled, I think we need to make a choice. I think at the beginning of 2018, God is laying out a choice for us. Choose now this day whom you will serve. Because we land in, live in a land of narcissism. But we follow a God who said, take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. At the beginning of 2018, I don't know if you've made a New Year's resolution. But I wonder if that's something worth resolving together. But what to believe together. As we gather around the communion table for the first time, I wonder if it's worthwhile reminding ourselves what the DNA of our family name is. I can't help but wonder, in the beginning of 2018, if a choice is laid before us. And maybe you're with me on this one. Maybe you're already ahead. You've already made this choice and we're just affirming it together and Mike is a little slowpoke. But I think as a people, we need to be able to answer that question. Choose now this day who you will serve. And my belief is that as a people, we say, as for me and this house, 
We will serve the Lord. And if that's a conviction in your soul, if that's a conviction of your spirit, I think 2018 is going to be amazing. Because despite it being a year of change, new growth happens. Let's pray and then we're going to gather around the communion table. Lord, we are a people that without you are completely lost. Lord, if we try and go it on our own, we're just going to be bumbling idiots. But Father, with you at the head, with you guiding us, Holy Spirit, with you doing work in our lives, Lord, the year ahead can be so amazing. Father, as a people, it's my belief that we do choose this day. We want, we reconfirm again, Lord, we want to serve you. Some of us, we've never wavered from that. The fire still burns bright. Some of us, we are recommitting to it. And Lord, as a people, we choose you at the beginning of 2018. Will you lead and guide? Will you draw people to yourself? Will you make your name great? Will you use us as you see fit? Lord, we choose again to be your servants. And followers, we gather around the communion table. Would you remind us that we're family, not because of our likes or interests or similarities, but because of your great grace. Amen.